This Dharma talk by John Sutherland, Heart Sutra 2, was given at the Heart Sutra Retreat at Mountain Cloud Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on July 21st, 2005. We're um, keeping company during this retreat with the Heart Sutra. And um, we meet tonight a few hours before the, the Heart Sutra full moon rises. And the reason we're doing that is because um, the man who wrote all of the music for the liturgy we use died two and a half weeks ago. And just a few days before he died, he um, unveiled the last big piece of the liturgy, which was his version of the Heart Sutra, which is um, deeply beautiful, as he was. And so, uh, and he loved that sutra. It meant a lot to him. So as, as Richie walks across the empty sky, we keep company with him walking the earth um, by taking up the Heart Sutra this week. Last night, uh, I mentioned some questions I had about the Heart Sutra, and maybe it bears repeating since we have a number of visitors tonight. Um, are you all, are you familiar with what I'm even talking about? Is it yes? Okay, good, <laughs> good. The first question I have about it is, um, there's this vast perfection of wisdom literature out of which the Heart Sutra comes. And all of it is given to us by Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of wisdom, which makes a certain kind of sense, except this one. This one, alone of all of them, is given to us by Avalokiteshvara, by the embodiment of compassion. Why is it that this sutra is spoken by compassion? The second question is um, about, about prajna, usually translated as wisdom. The prajna paramita literature was written at a time when things were changing uh, a great deal in, in the Dharma. Something new was coming in. And the one way of looking at the movement was that it was away from um, a longing for nirvana, a longing to deal with the difficulties and the suffering and the pain of life by finding a kind of separate peace, walking out of the room in some ways, you know, to use a simple metaphor. What shifted was that people began to think, maybe, maybe there's another way, that it's not about walking out of the room, it's not about finding a separate peace. What if the, the, um, the longing for nirvana became instead a deep desire for wisdom and a particular kind of wisdom that comes in and through the world, is made of the world, is made of our relationships in the world. In other words, what if instead of walking out of the room, we walk deeper into the room? What would that be like? What difference does that make? The third question I had is um, the part in the middle with all the no's, no eye, ear, to nose, tongue, body, mind, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, and so on, which is, um, gosh, it's a lot of no's, you know? And yet, it has a quality like a prayer. 
or an incantation. And it can actually feel exhilarating, even thrilling, to go through all those no's. Why should that be? Why should this list of negations be thrilling in some ways to us? The fourth question um, is about the promise, I think, of the Heart Sutra, which is, um, if we have no hindrance in the mind, we'll have no fear. And if we have no fear, then nirvana is right here. Then we don't have to go anywhere. We're already in the room of nirvana. And that seems to me to be huge. If we have no hindrance, there'll be no fear. And without fear, we'll be in paradise. So is that the promise of the sutra? And the last question I mentioned um, was really a question Richie and I shared which was, um, what about a tradition whose founding story uh, requires that the hero abandon his wife and child to go off on the spiritual quest? What is it, does that mean anything? Does that mean something? Um, and Richie worried that question over and over in so many great ways. And I think there were two parts for him. One was, what gets left out when we do that? We are in a tradition, after all, where in most times and places, um, the feminine was not particularly honored or honored in strange ways. And um, the life of the family was seen as an impediment. So what if we um, invite uh, Yashodara, who was the, uh, the Buddha's wife, and Rahula, their son, back into the room. What, what becomes possible when we do that? What was excluded that comes in, and what just happens, you know, new and fresh because they're present? So I'm going to sort of wander around in and among all of those questions tonight, but I want to begin with Richie's question. Uh, and also begin with Richie's voice. We, uh, John Terrence, who's my collaborator on the, on the, on the book, and Richie did the music, uh, wrote a, a dedication that we use in our service. And then Richie took off on it and just um, improvised this, this wonderful thing. And um, so I think you can, those of you who are familiar with the liturgy will get the part that's part of the service and then where Richie just takes off on it. And I, I'd like to start there. So is this? Yes, yeah, it's, it's on the left side. Uh, this, this. Okay. Thank you. 
that was um, Richie's song to um, all the grandmothers and mothers long since gone. And that was something um, he knew really intimately. When he was a, a child, he was, he was ill for a long time. And he was in bed next to his mother, who was also ill. And um, he got up out of that bed and she didn't. She died. So he lost his mother as a child. But his um, grandmother scooped him up. And his, his mother's sister, Ruth, scooped him up. And, and raised him and his brothers and his sister up. So he knows a lot, he knew a lot about um, when we open the door to the mothers and the grandmothers and what it's like when they're not in the room. And um, what's so interesting to me about the Heart Sutra, which can on the surface appear kind of cool, kind of emptiness, you know, kind of pretty, pretty much just wiping everything away into emptiness, is also in one way deeply about the presence and the absence of the feminine. So in honor of the, the grandmothers and the mothers long since gone, I want to try to give you a little bit of a taste of how people would have understood this sutra when it was first written, when people first spoke it, when people first um, chanted it together. It's very different than our understanding of it now. So I mentioned that there was this shift with the coming of the Prajnaparamita literature, which was vast, um, hundreds of sutras in 600 volumes. And uh, there were three sutras which were considered to contain, you know, sort of all of the wisdom of all of that. And um, they were called the Three Mother Sutras. There was a, quite a long one, over 100,000 verses, which was, which was called the Vast Mother Sutra. And there was a pretty short one, only about 8,000 verses, which was called the Brief Mother Sutra. <laughs> and then there was the one in the middle known as the Intermediate Mother Sutra. So I've, I've, um, I've been having a lot of enjoyment carrying around in my imagination the Vast Mother, the Brief Mother, and the Intermediate Mother. Um, of these three mother sutras, the heart sutra was said to be the heart of these three mothers. That their beating heart is here in this sutra, the long, the, the vast, the intermediate, and the brief. So there's some sense in which it's the grandmother speaking to us, you know? That's how people felt it. That's how people understood it in some way. And what they had to say was about Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, who was seen as feminine, who was seen as um, in, in, a goddess. I mean, there are statues of her. Um, and she was often brought into visualization in the Tibetan tradition. So highest perfect wisdom turns out to be this woman who knew, you know, um, this mother. And she was called the mother of all the Buddhas because it was in her womb, in the womb of highest perfect wisdom, that awakening is born, that enlightenment um, comes to fruition. There are stories again about presences and absences here. 
There's a Tibetan visualization in which you visualize Prajnaparamita on a throne and you envision Avalokiteshvara next to her. And as Avalokiteshvara begins to say the Heart Sutra, all the beings of the world are brought to the breast of Prajnaparamita. So when we speak the Heart Sutra, when we live in the wisdom that, that, that it talks about, it allows us to bring everything to our hearts. We don't deny anything. We don't reject anything. We can, we can embrace everything. And there's another, another story that talks about how if you turn away from this, if you turn away from this challenging, um, difficult, lifelong, all-consuming desire for and embodiment of prajna, it's like a blind child separated from its mother, which is a terrible image of bereft, isn't it? I mean, a blind child separated from her mother. Even if she were to stumble into her again, she might not recognize her. So there's a sense of what's at stake here. There's a sense of the tremendous beauty of living in prajna and a sense of the, the, the bereft and, and alienated and sad feeling of, of living without it. Um, another one of the stories says that, that, uh, that Shakyamuni, soon after he arose uh, up from under the bow tree, went up to, um, to, to heaven. His mother had died when he was seven years old and was taken up into the heavens and was watching him from, from the heavens and, um, and preached the sutra to her. Now, um, my guess is that there wasn't a whole lot of preaching going on, but probably more of a conversation. So that there's this sense of the first thing that Shakyamuni does when he gets up is he goes and finds his, his lost mother and they have a conversation. And out of that conversation comes the Heart Sutra. And they, they talked about this for days and days and days uh, up on the top of Mount Sumeru on this high mountain. And every night, um, Shakyamuni would come down and give a summary of what they talked about to Shariputra. Shariputra was the wisest of his disciples. And so he would sort of give them you know, the, the, the highlights of the conversation of that day. Um, and in Shariputra, we have another echo of this theme because Shariputra means the son of the egret. And the understanding is that the egret was his mother. So we have this another mother-son um, pair. So Shariputra sort of got it and sort of didn't get it, you know. And so what the Heart Sutra is, is Avalokiteshvara coming along to correct some of Shariputra's understandings of what it is the Buddha told him about the Buddha's conversation with his mother. And that's how we get the Heart Sutra, according to this story. So, does all of that matter? You know, does it make a difference? I think to me it does, because it challenges um, our idea of what prajna is. And when you look at the old commentaries that are from the time of these stories we're talking about, it's really clear that, that prajna was, is, a combination of, um, 
of, of intellect, you know, of cognition, of thinking, and also of knowledge, of intuition, of the wisdom of the body, of what we would call today emotional intelligence. Those parts of it are talked about, and all of those parts are necessary for prajna. Prajna is a wisdom of the whole self, of, of not just the mind, but the heart, the body, and the spirit as well. So, in the same way that we can't hope for enlightenment to come down and hit us like a bolt of lightning and save us from the messy job of having to live our lives, neither can we expect prajna to come like a bolt of lightning and save us from the messy job of cultivating our knowledge and our intelligence and our hearts and our feelings and um, our, the life of our bodies. And prajna isn't just a state, um, a thing over there on the other shore. It's always changing every time we change what we know with our bodies and our hearts and our minds. Our prajna changes. It moves and grows and shrivels and does all of that as we do too. That seems to matter to me. That seems to make a difference. And then there is this question of, um, of paramita, which means um, gone to the other shore. You know, it means perfect and complete, but the sense of, of it is to the other shore. And um, here there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea that life can be hard, that it can be like swimming in a sea. And sometimes it's calm and beautiful and warm, and sometimes it's pretty choppy and scary. And there are kind of ripples of things that go through the sea that catch us. Um, as a child, I remember one of my own meditations was to sit on the beach at a, on, on a bay that was off the ocean. And mostly there were just these little tiny wavelets that would come lap on, at, at my feet on the beach. But every once in a while, a great sailing ship would go by in the distance and it would set out this, these uh, waves through the bay. And first I would notice all of the boats that were moored out in front of our house would begin to rock like this. And then the waves would come up to the shore and for a few moments there would be actually waves on the shore. And then it would calm down again and go back to those little, just little wavelets. So there's a sense of those kinds of movements through the ocean, great ships passing in the distance, some of them quite beautiful. Um, you know, images from the Hubble spacecraft, Nelson Mandela being freed from jail. How beautiful the ripples on the water at times like that. And times when the waves are hard. Um, wars and bombings and things like that. So we're swimming and, um, and Prajna Paramita is the ship that picks us up out of that water. Gives us a ferry. The boat is going to take us to another shore that is somewhere else. Um, we're like what Hakuin calls digging a hole in the earth, searching for blue sky. So the great revelation of Prajnaparamita is that the boat is the other shore. We don't leave the ocean. 
You know, we have something that supports us, something that sustains us, but that's the other shore. That's what Elaine Scarry called the merciful beach, right there on the boat with everybody and everything else. also talk a little bit about those no's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, etc. and about kinds of no's when I first started working with Richie some people had a really hard time with him and one of the first um, the first things we did together during a retreat was called um, Mama Buddha Dharma, and Richie was the Mama Buddha. And he literally came through a window in the meditation hall in drag <laughs> and did this whole riff about um, what gets left out if you if you close the window to Mama Buddha. And it was beautiful. <laughs> and it was wild. <laughs> He's Cajun, if that helps anybody who doesn't know him. And some people really didn't like it. Some people really thought that was not the Dharma. And they left. They left the community over it. So that's one kind of no, right? That's the no of, I don't like this, and therefore this is bad. Right? That's the no that stops the story. End the story, right there, gone, over. In the weeks since his death, I've talked to a number of people who also had a hard time when he first came, but they didn't leave. They stayed with it. And they got interested in their aversive reaction. They got interested in why they didn't like it. And they stayed and listened. And, um, and so many of them have told me I, what I came to realize was I didn't want that much life in the dojo. I came to meditation to get away from that. I came to meditation to escape the, the messiness of the transvestite Cajun climbing in through the window. You know? and, I, and I didn't want it coming in. I didn't want it coming in. And then they said, I came to see you know, that that's exactly the Dharma that that's exactly it and how, how incredibly beautiful and rich it made things to say yes to that. So that's the provisional no. That's the no that says, I don't like this, but I'm willing to hang around and see if something's going to change. You know? And that lets the story continue. Maybe the ultimate outcome is the same. Maybe you decide it's not for me. And that's all right. As long as you don't say, it's not for me and so it's bad. You know? And maybe you'll say, oh, it's for me after all. The room just got a little bigger, a little brighter. The nose in the Heart Sutra offer us a way to work with that kind of stuff. 
It's not sweeping everything back into emptiness. It's not saying nothing is real, nothing matters, nothing counts. It's saying all of your ideas and opinions and criticisms and judgments and um, big theories and founding stories and, you know, major life principles, all of them are empty too. They are as empty as everything else. The self is just a name, the Buddha said. The self is just a name. It's just something we call something we experience. Same with eye, ear, nose, tongue. Same with all of those things. Boy, same with objects of thought, right? The the names we give are the objects of our thought. And what a good phrase that is because how it highlights how much we make those things up in our mind, you know? So that's a no that's liberating. That's a no that clears away the hindrances, clears away the ideas, opinions, and judgments, and strong feelings, and certainties, and principles that actually keep us out of life, keep us away from things, because they interpose themselves between us and things as they are. They try to substitute themselves for things as they are. Live with your images. Live with your ideas. Live with your opinions, you know? Not with, not with complicated, messy, gorgeous, beautiful, wild things as they actually are. So that's why I think that no, those no's can be so thrilling. Because, because we can, as we're saying them, experience what it's like to let all that fall away, to let all that go. And to discover that the more we do, the more we stand on the bare ground of prajna, the simpler things are. The more interesting things are. beautiful even when they're difficult things are that long night under the Bodhi tree at one point Shakyamuni said oh carpenter I have met the maker of this house and he was talking about the house of pain that's made by all of our hindrances, all of those things that we substitute for life. I have met the maker of this house and I will never rebuild this house again. The rafters are down, the beam is smashed and I will never make it again. That's the no of the Heart Sutra, to be able to bring that house of pain down and to stand on the bare ground, not so afraid, not so defended. To be able to bring things to our breast and not fear that.
So I think that's um, that's the promise of the Heart Sutra, and that's mm, that's what becomes possible when we open the room to um, Yashodara and Rahula. When we open the room to all of the parts of ourselves, when we open the room to the things of this world, it's messier. Sometimes it's harder. But having a taste of prajna, it's hard to turn away from that. It's hard to turn back. It's hard to not want that to continue to unfold. Because somehow, somehow it becomes so clear how that is the voice of compassion. That is how compassion acts in the world. If we can do that hard work of letting go the junk that gets between us and life, life is right there waiting for us. last thing I want to say has to do with um, something else that becomes possible if we bring in the grandmothers and the mothers. There's a lot of imagery about Prajnaparamita that has to do with um, with pregnancy, about, about Prajnaparamita being pregnant with us, you know, or pregnant with awakening and giving birth to that. And what I'd, what I'd like to do is, um, is recommend to you um, the image of pregnancy for, for the spiritual path. That in Zen, mostly, we have kind of heroic images of the spiritual path. You know, we're going to penetrate. We're going we're to scale the silver mountain. We're going to swallow the iron ball of doubt. We're going to, you know, it's like go, 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 do, 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 <laughs> you know. And there's something, you know, wonderful about that. And so I want to give you something else to put alongside that, next to that, which is, which is um, t- to, be, to be meditating, to be on a spiritual path is in some ways to be pregnant. In one way, that seems so bloody obvious to me. I can't believe I have to say it, but since it doesn't get said in the tradition, I'm going to say it. Um, Sure, it's about penetrating, but is it not also about being penetrated? You know, is it not also about having something come into us and, 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 and take root in us? You know, take root inside of us and grow. Is it not as much about that? Is not the freeing ourselves from hindrances as much about making ourselves open to the possibility of being entered like that as it is about anything else? Pregnancy has a couple of other things to recommend it as an image for the spiritual life. And one is that, um, you, know, you know how you say, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not really doing my practice, I'm not, I'm not sitting, or um, 
I, I'm, I'm off it somehow, I'm off the path somehow, I'm on a detour and I want to really get back to real practice and all of that. Well, imagine saying, you know, I just, I'm not pregnant today. <laughs> you know, I was pregnant yesterday, but, but I'm, I, I'm going to take a break from being pregnant. <laughs> you know, or, God, I just don't have time to be pregnant today. <laughs> you know, no, <laughs> no. You're pregnant all the time. You know, that's what's going on. And everything that happens is part of the pregnancy. You're never on the path or off the path of pregnancy. You're always on the path of pregnancy, right? In the same way, we're never on the path or off the path of our practice. We're always on the path of our practice. It's just that sometimes we forget or sometimes we'd like to pretend we're not. There's no detours. You know, nothing that happens is, is, a, is a, you know, a distraction or a break or, a, a, you know, something's gone wrong. It's all it. It's all it. And what if you embraced all of it as it in the same way that you embrace everything that happens with the pregnancy as being part of that? So that's one, one way it might be helpful. And I think um, the other way is that it's so fundamentally, again, to say, you know, the blazingly obvious, it's so fundamentally about a relationship. Um, it's about the relationship of beings, the most intimate relationship of beings one to another. And that's what meditation is about. Fundamentally, it's about relationship. Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with the world, and somehow our relationship with the vastness as well. And we don't take a break from that either, you know? We're never not in relationship with ourselves and the world and the vastness, as much as we might like to not be sometimes. We always are. And um, there is a strong strain in Zen of that sense of companionship, the ways we are companioned and we companion. Not just other beings, but the vastness as well. So that you have um, Dungshan, particularly this was something that Dungshan spoke a lot about, the, the, the wonderful story where... Um, um, Someone says to him, you know, work, work, work. All you do is work. Why don't you take a break? Why do you work so hard? And he says, I do it for another. And the questioner asks, well, why don't you get the other to do it for herself? And Dungshan says, because she has no hands. So there's that sense of we companion the vastness by being the hands, the eyes, the heart, the wisdom of the vastness. That's what we bring. That's what we can do. And we're always in that relationship. We're always walking with the vastness in that way. And there's something beautiful about that. In, in another, another time, someone asked Deng Shan, um, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm making some tea. I'm, I'm making some tea for that other. Well, um, why don't you get that other to make the tea for, for himself? And Deng Shan said, fortunately, I am here to do it. Fortunately, we are here to do it. We are here to be the hands, the eyes, the heart, the brain, the feet of the vastness. And if that seems um, 
romantic, you know, or unattainable. One last Dongshan story. When he was very, very ill in his last illness, someone asked him, is there one who is not sick? And he said, yes, there is. There is one who is not sick. Well, what are you doing being sick then? And he said, I am taking care of that one who is not sick. So it's not just about being, you know, the good and wonderful and holy hands and eyes and heart and mind of the vastness. It's about being sick when the vastness needs to be sick, you know? That's the way we take care. When we're sick, when we're sleepy, when we're cranky, when we just do the goddamn grocery shopping, you know? When, when, when we stay up all night with a sick child when all we want to do is sleep, you know? When we pay the bills when we write the checks for refugee relief. All of that, all of those simple, ordinary, everyday things. It's our taking care of that other one who is never sick, who doesn't need checks, who doesn't need groceries. So those are just a few of my thoughts about, um, <clears throat> about warming up our cool understanding of the Heart Sutra. And uh, I would welcome any comments or questions you might have. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at jonesutherlanddharmaworks.org.